So um, Work is Way is a, a new series that we're going to be sitting with for more than a few weeks. And it's something we're pretty excited about. It's going to carry us through a portion of the fall. It really does feel like a natural connector or connective, something that flows out of where we've been the last two weeks when we had the Live It Out mini-series. Live It Out, we rolled out um, our refresh mission statement, the idea of living out our faith in Jesus and inviting others into life with him. And we spent a lot of time talking about it. Well, Work His Way is going to follow right back up on that. We've got a couple of special things planned as well, and I'm excited about those things. One of which is actually, if you look in your handout on the right-hand side, on the far column there, you notice that we have something we haven't actually done before that we're going to be trying to do for just this series and see, and see how it, it actually helps to, to allow us to complement some of the things that we are aspiring towards. You'll notice that we have the, what's called a Saturday Night Exclusive. These are these after-service chats that we're going to be doing. And I realize that a majority of us don't necessarily come to Saturday evening service, but you may want to think about it at least um, if there's a particular maybe person that you might, or a subject that, approach that you might find particular resonance with or think it might be nice to bring someone to hear. Well, we're, the plan is after, immediately after the service, we will have about a 30-minute interactive time. And you can see that we're going to be actually kicking it off with someone who's actually hosting at our Lake Merced campus right now, Ike Kwan. And Ike is, oversees the entire California Academy of Sciences. And he's, he's going to be sharing uh, on taking risks for God. This idea, again, of integrating our work and faith. You'll see there are a few others. We actually close it out with hearing from our, a longtime member of our church community, Jay Ward, who uh, is part of Pixar. And he was the one who was really responsible for uh, a lot of the, the whole cars rollout and creation. And so just a, a wonderful, rich opportunity for us to be able to dive in and layer things out a bit. Here's the deal. The, it's, it's only going to happen on the Saturday evening. We're, we're not going to be able to record it or live stream it because of the nature of, of, and the relationship of the companies and the way that, that we're engaging the idea of faith. is something we can only really do this way. So just make a note of it. Is something, again, we're pretty excited about and looking forward to. In my mind, uh, live, living it out, like I mentioned, does flow perfectly into work his way. Uh, I was considering the fact that it's in the workplace or at school or at home where most of us who are in this sanctuary or who are watching, again, as I mentioned, online, live stream or replay, spend large quantities of our time and energy and waking hours, right? So it's, 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 we, we, you know, it's where we spend a lot of time trying to make a living, which is a curious phrase. You know, someone says, what do you do for a living? And it's almost always connected to the idea of what you do for work. Uh, and, and so that carries with it a certain type of response pattern as well. In some cases, some of us are building a business. Some of us are trying to earn a degree. Some of us are managing a household, which in some ways, it's like managing a small business, okay? It's, it's actually not that easy to do well. And when you think about it, um, and th there might be more than a few of us who are trying to do a, a couple of those things. That carries with it a lot of implications. So what I want to do in this week and in the coming weeks is use the scripture as a guide to sort of explore together this relationship of faith and work, but work not in only a limited, narrow definition of the marketplace, which is where a lot of us are, but also expanding that out a bit. Again, if we're a student or if we're someone whose predominant responsibilities are more homeward and household oriented, wherever it is, 
that we find ourselves. Some of us might be in management. Some of us might be, uh, you know, own, uh, owners, as we've talked about. Some of us might find ourselves trying to start a little side business. However we work, this is something that I'm hoping we can apply. Many of us have job descriptions. Uh, I actually have a few. One of them, as a pastor, is, is summed up in a particular portion of Scripture, in the book of Ephesians. I'm just going to ask them if they could put it up there. I, just want, I thought this would be helpful for us to at least see. It says that he himself, Paul writes, uh, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints and for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body. So the primary job of what theologians sometimes refer to as the fivefold ministry here is, if you'll notice, to equip the believers for the work of the ministry. And I love the wordplay on it. But it's one of the, you know, I'm, I often talk when I share the message uh, with all of us. I, I like to include myself. So it's, it's, I don't usually don't say you a lot. It's not my typical go-to. I, I tend to say we, us, our, because I'm part of the journey too, right? And, but in this particular case, I think it does create a sense of, of differentiation where I can actually say that my primary responsibility pastorally, and this, this affects all of our staff as well, but certainly in, in my situation, is to equip you for the work of the ministry and for the edifying, the, and then I'm also responsible for building up and strengthening the body. I take that very seriously. But my point is this. A lot of times people say, oh, so what do you do for a living? So I'm a pastor, you know, I'm in the ministry. But the truth is, you are all in the ministry if you have made a decision to love, receive, and represent Jesus. That's what he was saying. Equip them to do the work of the ministry. The work of the ministry is being done by the, the, the equipping to do it. It's a really great statement if you think about it because it's implying that the real work of ministry is done outside of the times when we gather. We gather to strengthen. We gather to equip. We gather to prepare to do the work of the ministry. So you are all ministers. Some of you are pastors of people that you are responsible for. And if you have the Lord in your life, if we have the Lord in our life at the center, and I've, I've shared this with my mother. My mother is uh, a small business owner up north in, in Oregon and uh, on a coastal, in a coastal town called Florence. She, in her late 60s and 70s, has uh, been, you know, started a couple of restaurants. And she's amazing. She's, she's an amazing woman, very entrepreneurial and uh, energetic. And I've been so impressed with her, especially also by how she had her faith reawakened in her life. Her love for the Lord began to flourish at the same time when she was really engaging in these businesses. And one of the things we've often talked about, as I said, Mom, I said, you know what? You, she, and she really does take it seriously. All the people you employ, the people that um, you work with, and I see the way you give, give your heart to them, and you're, and you're trying to run a good business at the same time you're, you're trying to honor the Lord in the way you interact with the people who work for you. And um, I've, I've watched what she's done. I've watched the interest she's taken in their lives. I've watched the way she's helped them. In some cases, been able to invite more than a few of them to church that she is a part of. And uh, I, I said, you know what you are? I said, whether you realize it or not, you're a pastor. 
You're a shepherd of the people that, that God has given you. And some of us are responsible for small groups. And I know it may seem totally illogical, but that's part of the work of the ministry, is taking seriously that responsibility. And I realize it's fraught with all kinds of challenges in the present culture. I get it. And we're going to talk about some of these things again in the weeks ahead. And you actually look at a case study, a man named Daniel. Now we had to do this in a very challenging environment. But I hope we take seriously the privilege and the responsibility of our calling. And it's all of your calling. Uh, you know, one of the reasons, another, one of the reasons I, I also feel, and again, I, I feel comfortable sharing about this subject is that the one thing now over the course of decades um, of ministry, I've had a chance to work intimately with so many different types of, of people. Um, I was writing some things down, uh, the different types of men and women that I've worked with from a wide variety of business and employment backgrounds, blue collar, white collar, that's the beauty of a church. It's all different. And yet coming together in a way that when the church is working right, there's nothing like it in the world. I mean, nothing can compare to it. The divisions that seem to get erased. It's stunning. Uh, <clears throat> I've, I've, I've had a chance to watch and work with a number of men and women from a wide variety of, of backgrounds, blue collar, white collar, tech, traditional artists, designers, engineers, architects, students, teachers, homemakers, athletes, directors, supervisors, managers, nonprofit, you name it, all kinds of different types. And uh, I think it's, I've really watched them try to live out, watched them, not many of you, try to live out your faith sincerely. And, and coming in, in every conceivable sector, right? At, and every, every conceivable socioeconomic level. So it's not like this is like a, a, a clean layer. We're talking about this, this, all of us collectively have different experiences of trying to live out our faith for Jesus. Plus, on top of that, I've had, and again, I'm just, just laying this foundation. You won't, I won't talk a lot about this a lot. But the fact of the matter is, in addition to being able to interact with so many uh, people wrestling with faith and work over the course of, of years now, I've also really had the privilege and responsibility of, of leading this ministry organization as a CEO for the, nearly 30 years. And I've had to hire staff. I've had to implement sound business practice, set the organizational culture and vision at the same time, trying to lead my household effectively. And my supreme goal and dream was to see my children follow the Lord as adults by their own volition. But those are no small things. And uh, we will need tremendous grace to do them well. So this, what I'm trying to get at is what we're about to engage is not just theoretical to me. This is not just about a perspective, um, someone sitting outside looking at a couple of Bible passages to throw our way to get us motivated. It, that would be okay. That's not my, my desire. Um, and remember, and I know this because I've made a lot of mistakes along the way, perfection is not the goal. Uh, <clears throat> at the most base level, and I mean base in terms of basic, to be consistently adequate at times is a legitimate goal. So what are you talking about? Yeah, con consistent adequacy over a long arc of time creates a kind of health, because there's a lot of times where doing our best is being consistently adequate. It really is. In fact, you know what? Turn to somebody and say this. 
May you be amazingly consistently adequate. Go ahead, say it to a couple of different people. <laughs> amazingly consistently adequate. <clears throat> it sounds simple, but sometimes just showing up is victory. And of course, people might say, oh, that's not, that's, that's nothing to do with doing your best. Actually, sometimes that is doing, there are some seasons where so, a part of us wants to run away, take the easy out, quit, give up, if not externally, internally. And I'm saying is that sometimes the Lord just giving us the strength to pursue a relative level of health and be there and work through the hard place and wrestle with our own weakness and, and, and in a way challenge what's challenging us by just not giving into it. Over time, God will bring something, break something out. Remember we talked about super bloom. He can do it. He does it all the time. If we don't quit, show some grit, stick with it. <laughs> do your best, forget the rest, right? Come on. So one of the principles I want to explore, ironically, after I just have had everyone say, sometimes the goal could be to be amazingly consistently adequate, I want to throw out this other corollary a compliment to it. It's not meant to contradict it, but it is a principle I would like us to focus on. And it is this, and they'll put it up right now. But I believe that all sincere followers of Jesus are to be a people committed to giving their best. A people committed to excellence and quality work. I think that implies effort. I think it implies attentiveness. It implies restraint. It implies sweat equity. And you will see in your, in your handout or in your, on your Bible app or if you brought your Bibles with you, look at Matthew 24 with me. Now, I want to look at a portion of Scripture and real quickly try to just examine it for a moment. In Matthew 24, Jesus is using in the primary context a series of illustrations and metaphors to get us thinking about how we should be living prior to his return. But in his closing illustration, the one that we're about to look at here, right here in verse 45, in his closing illustration... He talked about the difference between a faithful and an unfaithful, he calls it evil, servant. And uh, I want us to read this through. Uh, a faithful, sensible servant, Jesus said, is one, and he's, he's telling a story. This is a story that would have fit their culture. He says, a, a sensible servant is one to whom the master can give the responsibility of managing his other household servants and feeding them. If the master returns and finds that the servant has done a good job, there will be a reward. It'll be honored. But I tell you the truth, the master will put that servant in charge of everything he owns. I mean, you find a quality worker like this, you want to give them more responsibility. It just makes sense. Delegate. But what if that servant is evil and he thinks, man, my master won't be back for a long time and he's got the authority. It's dangerous when someone gains authority and has a corrupted character. The level of toxic waste that can flow into a, a business or a community is stunning. The damage that can be done. Jesus doesn't pull any punches in his description. He says, but what if that servant is evil and thinks, my master won't be back for a long time. And he starts and he begins beating the other servants, partying and getting drunk. And the master will return unannounced and unexpected in Jesus in harsh language again. He will cut that servant to pieces and assign him to a place with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing. He'll, he'll be repaid. All right? Now, I hope what we can see here is that this is not only a contrast of attitudes, but it's a contrast of management styles. 
A servant in this sense is like a, an employee, right, of his master, someone functioning in a position of delegated authority. One is described as faithful, the other in stark stroke as an evil one. But look at the two primary, do you see the two primary indictments against the evil servant or the unfaithful one? If you look closely, you can see there are essentially two things that are being referred to. The first one is this. He says, he is a, he's, when he says he beats his fellow servants, that is, he's mean-spirited towards his co-workers, towards those to whom he has been given oversight. There's a kind of a, a mean-spiritedness to it, an exploitive thing that's going on, that's being described here. He beats them. You know, he treats them poorly, talks down to them, if you will. But the other thing that we notice here, and then he says he eats and drinks with drunkards, instead of being diligent to the role, he takes advantage of the position and the power and the authority, and he or she engages in self-indulgence, in this case, partying, getting drunk, and just taking care of themselves. And, and this is quite, actually more relevant than it seems. It's very relevant um, in the land, in the world, and even more so, I believe, in our city with all of the unique things that are going on and the unique kind of dynamic of a certain type of tech gold rush that seems to be happening along with other things in other industries as well, biotech, et cetera. There will be a need for great character when sometimes we achieve relative success. And I've said this before, just because we have the means to get something we want does not mean we should get it. And that generosity, more of it, is an important feature in anyone who sincerely wants to follow Jesus. So essentially what we're talking about, if I can summarize it this way, is relational unkindness and excessive self-indulgence. Now when I look at this parable, it's easy to see, this illustration, it's easy to see that God cares both and notices the quality of our work and the service that the servants render to him. What he's really saying is he, is, he admires the servant who gives their best. He wants us to be responsible, treat others well to be a people of loyalty, wisdom, kindness, generosity. I think it's so clear. If I were summarizing the series theme verse, if I was using a theme verse for this series, the closest thing I probably would find would be what we're about to put up here in Colossians 3. Look what it says. It's talking about how we do our work, why we do our work, right? Work willingly in whatever you do, though as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Now let that settle for a moment. For a follower of Jesus, what matters most is what matters to the Lord. And that's going to show up in how we do the work we do. The way in which we work, the way in which we <coughs> pursue things, uh, if I was taking it out a little further, how do we do? Do we join in with certain things? You know, things are being said. We just jump right in with it. Do we say nothing? How do we finish things? Do we do it as in the Lord? Is it only if I get praise from people? If I get an acknowledgement, a bonus, somebody? We want, I want that. Everybody wants that. And everybody does better with encouragement. I can't think of anything that anyone does better without it. But in the end... In the end, it's not about, it's not about what people, that's what we're being told here. There are certain things when no one sees that a person who is committed to following the Lord will do. That extra 10%, 
that choice to be honest and ethical, the way we treat someone when we're being mistreated, we will wrestle with the idea of, do I come back this way? I was talking to someone this morning, and they were telling me, you know, I've been so, we had some guy sue us, right? He was telling me, and then he, the guy afterward was all done, and he made us work so hard to get that thing settled. Then afterwards, he comes back, and he starts asking for favors on the side. And part of me wanted to go, get out of my face. He goes, the nerve of this person, right? He, but I could see, the, he goes, but I've been, I've been trying. I've been asking the Lord to help me because I have so much anger, but at the same time, I want to bless this person because I think I'm supposed to respond. I mean, it was, I was listening to him wrestle with this. I was going, you know what? You, all, you already, you're doing exactly what we're talking about. I, go, I commend you in the Lord's name. It, what do we do when we see something? You know, I, always, I say, you know, see a piece, of, a piece of garbage on the floor where we work. Do we pick it up? And that sounds so simple. I try to tell myself to do the same thing, right? Because it matters. It ma- I don't know, ma- little things, little, th- certain things matter. It don't matter to a lot of other people, but we work under the Lord. How we finish this thing, that last 10%, the, way, the effort I put into the project, the way we complete our assignment, the way we honor our word, the way we keep our commitments, those things should matter. You know, I was reading a story uh, about uh, an admiral. Now, this admiral, not a lot of us would know, but he was, we won't recognize his name, most of us, but he was responsible in the last century, in, in the 1900s, actually, at the birthing of our nuclear, nuclear naval arsenal. His, his role, he's, the man's name is Admiral uh, Rickover. Um, his name is Admir- Admiral Hyman G-, G. Rickover. For three decades, he was essentially the head of the United States Nuclear Navy. That is a Navy within the Navy. I think we understand how strategic it is. They had the nuclear weapons. They have them. He was responsible for creating it, launching it, and sustaining it. Not just for a little time, for three decades. And he's still referred to as the father of the nuclear Navy. And uh, I remember reading a story about him. He died in, in, we'll put a picture of it. He died in 1986 at the age of 86. By the way, Rickover was the longest serving naval officer in U.S. history. Check this out. 63 years of active duty. Wow, that's what I said. (laughs) You know what? PBS described him as combative, provocative, searingly blunt. And by all accounts, Rickover was a polarizing figure. People who loved him, they just loved him. And those who didn't, they really didn't, right? (laughs) He was stern. He was demanding. And for years, it was said that he personally interviewed and approved every officer who served aboard a nuclear submarine. Think about that. Again, the article said that those who, who went through those interviews usually came out shaking in fear, anger, or total intimidation. One of those officers who applied for service under Rickover was a man who would someday be president of the United States, although no one knew it at the time. His name was Jimmy Carter. And here is Carter's account of his interview with the legend Rickover. I read it. I had applied for the nuclear submarine program and Admiral Rickover was interviewing me for the job. It was the first time I met Admiral Rickover and we sat in a large room by ourselves for more than two hours. 
and then he let me choose any subjects I wish to discuss. How's that for a job interview? You got two hours, any subject you want to discuss, we'll talk about it. Very carefully, Carter says, I chose those about which I knew the most at the time. Uh, current events, seamanship, music, literature, naval tactics, electronics, gunnery. And he began to ask me a series of questions of increasing difficulty. And in each instance, he soon proved that I knew relatively little about the subject that I had chosen. <laughs> and he, he, he looked into my eyes, Carter says, and he never smiled. And he says, I was saturated in cold sweat. Finally, he asked me a question, and I thought I could redeem myself. He said, how did you stand in your class at the Naval Academy? Since I had completed my sophomore year at Georgia Tech before entering Annapolis as a plebe, I actually had done very well. And I swelled my chest with pride. And I answered, sir, I, I stood 59th in a class of 820. And I sat back to wait for the congratulations. Congratulations that never came. Instead, the question, did you do your best? I started to say, Yes, sir. But I remembered who this was, and I recalled several of the many times at the academy when I could have learned more about our allies, our enemies, weapons, strategy, and so forth. I was, I was just human. I finally gulped, and I said, no, sir. I did not always do my best. And he looked at me for a long time, and then he turned his chair around to end the interview. And as he was turning, he asked one final question, which I have never been able to forget. Why not? And I, I sat there for a while, shaken. And I just slowly got up and left the room. What was interesting is that Carter ends up serving under Rickover. He, he ends up being actually somewhat close to him. He, he says he loved him and hated him because he pushed him so hard. What's fascinating, here's an interesting, what's amazing about this is that Carter's first autobiography that he uses to introduce himself in the 1976 presidential campaign that he ends up winning you know what it's called? Why not the best? And it is exactly connected to that conversation when he was asked, see, why not your best? What does it even mean? What are we getting at here? It means we're challenging ourselves to avoid coasting and just getting by. You know what's interesting is that when Carter pumped out, when he was asked the question, you know, where did you stand? Where did you stand, right? In your class, how did you go? He, 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 put, he pumps out his position in the class, right? Because I was, I was like, you know, right there. That was my, my class. I, I feel really good about it. I was 59th in the class. And of 820, I mean, he's using that as a, as a, as a way of kind of saying, I really, I stood out. I did really well. You got to acknowledge that. And, and relative to others, he had done very well. But 
Rickover was pushing into a very different place, wasn't he? Carter says, this is what I did. This is how I did compared to everybody else. He says, that's not the question. How'd you do? Did you do your best? Did you apply yourself? Did you maximize your gifts? Did you put in the extra work? That, the measurement of self-application, did you take, did you, did you take the easy path, my friend? Did you coast? Not compared to others, but to you. Ooh, that's powerful. And if you think about it, it's a great question, right? Especially for a follower of Jesus. Why not the best? Here's what I was thinking. In a general term, I said to you, hey, why aren't we doing our best for the Lord? I'm not going to ask that question. I'm going to ask it in a different one. Are there certain areas where the Lord is clearly saying, I am calling you to, to give something better than what you've been giving? Are there areas where we're slacking off or taking a mediocre path where the Lord is saying, no, this is an area in your life that I want to upgrade and I need you to be serious about it. I need you to put in some effort. I need you to put in some attentiveness. I need you to, put, I need you to give your best. You know what Paul said in Philippians 3? And I, I'm just going to, again, looking at his own words there as we put them up. He says, not that I've already attained or I'm already perfected, but I, look at this, I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus also laid hold of me. My brothers, my sisters, I do not count myself to have apprehended. No, I'm not there yet. But this one thing I do, I'm leaving the things behind. I can't change those things. And I'm reaching forward to those things which are ahead. And I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Are there areas where the Lord is calling us? Interesting word here, press. Like the idea of pressing into it. You know, press and pressure are interesting words. Are there places, let's think about it. Is that is part of me? Because it's said two times in that path. You can see it. You press on. I press toward, right? This interesting use of this word, this idea of effort. Like when I'm pressing into something, like I'm pushing myself. I'm not, I, it's, just, it's not something that is just kind of, uh, I lay, kind of laissez-faire. Whatever will be, will be. No, this is, I'm pushing into this. There's a pressure being applied. And I get it. That, that's required, it's talking about effort. And it's almost like the Lord is saying that there may be in our lives, if we're honest, and I have this in my life too. If I get to real honest with the Lord, I hear him say, I need you to press better into this. You're not giving me your best here. You're giving me your leftover. You're coasting. You can do better than this. It's not about perfection. It's not about earning my, his love. It's about operating as one loved. Because I love you, Jesus. Because you first love me. I, wanna, I, wanna do, I want to honor you with my life. I do. Help me. There might be some areas where we are... We're being way too passive. We're coasting when we should be contending. Upward is where I want to take you. If we believe the, way, the words of Jesus, and we believe the way we live and work matters, which, which, the, that the way we act and treat people matters, we believe that there is such a thing as accountability ultimately and laying up treasure in heaven, being rich towards God, as Jesus said, living with an eye towards heaven, with an eternal spark. Jesus said, look, lay not up for yourselves treasures on this earth where moth and rust corrupt and thieves break in and steal it away. 
bad economy or some identity theft. Don't build your life on fragile things that can be stripped away from you. Instead, lay up for yourself treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust can corrupt it, steal it, corrode it, and thieves can't break in and steal it away. No, I tell you, where your heart is, there will your treasure be also. Make sure your heart is in the right place. Very powerful, powerful thing. It's a reminder that we are to have an internal perspective. You know, C.S. Lewis, in his book that we looked at this summer, Mere Christianity, wrote these words. And I just want you to look at them as, as we turn towards our closing bend here. It says, in his, he talked about how having an eternal perspective matters so much for the present life that we live and the way we seek to honor God with our life. He says, look at this. He says, this means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking. It's not like, oh, I just can't wait to get to heaven and care less about my life on earth. But one of the things a Christian is meant to do, listen, it does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. And then he makes a fascinating observation. He says this, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought more of the next, not less. And he starts talking about the apostles. He starts with examples, the English evangelicals who helped eradicate slavery. He says, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. And then, and listen to this, it is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven, you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, you will get neither. Powerful, profound. It's counterintuitive. The point is this. Aiming at heaven affects how we live on earth. It's essentially a worldview that affects and arranges and informs and gives meaning to our life. If, what, if I'm going somewhere and this life matters, then how I live this life matters. How I work matters. How I act when no one's looking matters. It, all, it matters. It all matters. This is, it's almost like one writer suggested a corollary works at multiple levels. For example, aim for intimacy with your spouse. You'll get sexual fulfillment thrown in. Aim for sexual fulfillment without intimacy. You'll get neither. Aim to be financially generous. You'll get contentment thrown in. Aim for contentment only. You'll get neither. It's, it's like there are principles of life. It's where is our focus, right? This is where, they act, where Lewis's axiom holds so much power because when we make our earthbound decisions, when we aim only at earth, right, what happens is we start to, we, we don't have a mooring point, it, it becomes disconnected from the love of God, and then nothing really has meaning. It's just like, why should I do it? Is it just for me? I mean, you start walking down, but, but in heaven's shadow, nothing is without purpose. That's what, he was, that's what he was getting at. He was saying, when we really believe that where we're going and what we do here has significance, then it affects the decisions we make. It affects the way we love. It affects the way we treat our commitments. It affects the way we work. It affects the way we challenge ourselves to be a, a blessing. It starts taking my eyes off of me and it starts putting it out a little bit differently. It starts changing things, it's right? So look, I'll leave this this last verse. Look what it says here in 1 Peter 2. And we'll close with this one. 1 Peter 2, it says, and this is in your handout, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain. He's writing to believers, okay? To abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. It's okay to wrestle. You gotta do it. Live such good life, God will help us. Live such good lives among the pagans. And, and Peter's referring here 
is to those unbelieving Gentile neighbors, right? He was, that they were around. And he says that, that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. In other words, that your life would tell a different story. It doesn't matter what people say. It's what you really are doing. What is your life saying? Well, that's powerful. This passage is something we can carry right into our work. The goal of every true believer should be to live with excellence. Challenges to be virtuous people. Church matters. We get reminded of first things. Matters to have us people that we're engaging with, training with, who are also make, fellowship is, two, is people in the same boat rowing in the same direction together. It's training together. It's encouraging one another. Others in a life of faith, pushing, pushing ourselves, holding ourselves accountable, strengthening, praying, being, I'm talking about this, the value of community, small group, church life, it's all there. Not so we can be a self-righteous people, well, certainly not a perfect people, but a people whose lives reveal that we have a sincere love for uh, the risen Savior. And, and that, listen, that we, not, not only that we have a sincere love for the risen Savior, that we are different, yes, and better people because of it. That we're better people than what we would be because of that. We're better managers, we're better employees, we're better employees, we're better it shows up in the way we live, in the work, and the way we treat people, that we'd be contagious in our word and deed, that, we'd be, that we would contend for our faith. There are some of us, that's why we wrestle with things on the inside to get better. Why? Because we want to contend for it. We want to be contenders, right? I want to be a contender. Come on. I think that's what the Lord wants us to be. He wants us to contend for things. Uh, in the coming weeks, we're going to explore how to do that. Hey, why not our best? Hashtag no mediocrity. Come on. <laughs> Let's pray together. All right. Lord, I ask you to help us. I, I pray that by the time we are done with these weeks, that there will come incremental strength that will flow into us, and you'll fill us also with wisdom. Wisdom that flows out of your word. The wisdom that will help us negotiate challenging places. I ask that we would become better at the work we do, whether it's, whether it's the work we do in our school or in our, in our homes or in the marketplace, on the job sites, where we work and spend our, so much of our lives these days, that we will be better, not only representatives of your heart, informed by a perspective that is eternal, not simply transitory and temporal, but something that speaks to us, calls to us, again, that eternal sparkle in our eye that challenges the things that we would pursue and challenges us to get better on the internal places as well. I just ask that you would stir our hearts to become a, a better representative, not only of you, but also just a, a growing person in you. The life of Christ would flow in us increasing dimension, and the product of that would be, again, we're not perfect. We're going to have struggles. The very fact that we're willing to wrestle with things in some way sets us apart. Not just let it be, but we're going to go at it. I ask for grace and life, Lord. Help us. We don't, know, we don't know the last day of our lives. We don't. We don't know the final square in the box, Lord. You, that, you know it. But between now and whenever that is, I ask that you would help us to live our lives well for you, to be a people who seek to do our best. And if I can say it this way, Lord, in the area that we're hearing your voice calling to us to contend for improvement, 
and quality and not just a let it be. Stir our hearts, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen, Lord.